Well, as you know, and it's already been uh, uh, announced that Rod is preaching at Mike Wing's church in North Platte this morning. So I've asked, uh, we asked a friend of mine, James Sullivan, to fill the pulpit. I've known James for about six years. Uh, James, he grew up in uh, southeast Missouri, way down in the corner of southwest, southeast Missouri, down near the current river. And um, he moved to Iowa. And in 2017, he came to Kansas City to look at the Expositor's Seminary. I met him then. He, he loved it. He moved his family from Iowa to Independence, Missouri, where he currently lives. And then four years later, in 2021, he graduated and received his MDiv degree from the Expositor Seminary. James and his wife, Beth, have three children. He works for ABS Pork as a field manager. So he's the guy that goes around Missouri and um, makes sure that the farmers are, I guess, raising their, their pigs right. Pigs or hogs, I don't know what it's supposed to be, but I don't know what's correct. But he is the guy who goes around and makes sure that, that uh, the pigs are healthy. He serves as an elder at Mission Road Bible Church where he teaches and fills the pulpit on occasion. His goal, his passion, what he wants to do with his life is to be a full-time pastor. And he's currently looking for a church. I'm happy he could be with here here with us at Countryside this morning. So would you join me in welcome, welcoming James Sullivan? Well, good morning. It is a privilege for me to be here this morning. This is my first time here, but I feel like I've known this church for a long time just because of the connections that Mission Road has with this church. Um, I was not in Mission Road when Rod was there, but we have benefited from his decades of ministry at that church that we continue to build on. So I myself feel like I have greatly benefited from his ministry over the years. And of course, as Bob just said, I've known him for six years. Him and Kathy have been very significant in not only just my education as far as being in seminary, but also just Bob being my pastor, shepherding me, shepherding me as just a member of his flock. And even last night, Beth and I, my wife, was sitting on the couch and she was just talking about how much she misses having co uh, coffee with Kathy week to week and how much this effect she had on her and just my marriage in general. So very grateful for the Taylors and not only that, but of course, uh, Aaron. Um, I remember when Aaron came to me and said he was thinking about this crazy thing about going to seminary. And to see him graduate this year has been just a joy for me. And uh, also, uh, Jordan Jacobson, who is a deacon of ours, we greatly benefit from his ministry. In fact, I don't know what we would do without him. So, Jeff, you cannot bring him back here and steal him like you did Bob. He's got to stay. He's got to stay there. So... Like I said, it is a blessing for me to be here, but we have all these connections, but the main connection that we have is the gospel, and we're connected together through his written word. So with that in mind, please take your copy of God's word, and please turn to 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to be spending our time in verses 7 through 12. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. All scripture is profitable 
But there's some, of the, some passage in general who just, it seems like I have to go back to again and again and again. It almost just kind of becomes like this worn out tool in my life that I'm constantly going to. And I'm needing that truth to guide me and to remind me of the great salvation I have. And these are, this is one of those passages. So please follow along with me as I start reading verse 7. The Apostle John writes, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The only one who does not love does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So first thing in addressing a passage of scripture is looking for certain words or phrases that might be used over and over and over to start to be able to understand the un- what the author was intending and what he was writing. So there's one word here that he says over and over and over, and that is the word love. In fact, counting the two times that he calls these early Christians beloved, the word love is used 15 times in just these six verses. So, you can assume that this morning we are going to be talking about love. However, there is a problem in our day and age when you just throw out the word love. And the problem is, the word love has been distorted many different ways to mean something far different than the word love in which John is talking about within this passage. Love is something everybody wants. But most of the time when people are talking about love, they're talking about something vain, shallow. They're talking about something more self-centered, something that is selfish. For example, we live in a society that celebrates Valentine's Day, where there's a day marked on the calendar where you're supposed to show love to your wife, husband, significant other. And before I say what I'm gonna say, men take the opportunity on Valentine's Day, show honor to your wife and treat her well on that day. However, what normally happens is people get off work, they rush home, they stop at the nearest store, gas station, whatever, you buy these half-dead plants, junk food, just whatever, then you bring it home and give it to your wife and you say, here, I love you, I love you because of this. And because of that, Things that we do within society, like Valentine's Day, love becomes many times just tacky. It becomes cliche. Something that's just kind of degraded and we do something just because it's a day on the calendar. Let's face it, that's why we participate in Valentine's Day because it's a day marked on the calendar. So love becomes very selfish and just tacky. 
But that's not the biggest danger as far as love becoming cliche or just kind of tacky. The biggest danger is most of the time when the world uses the word love, it is something that is centered around self. It is centered around your own feelings and desires. One of the biggest genres of books and movies is romance, where the plot centers around one's just strong desires for another person. These stories are driven by just lust and desires that cause drama and excitement. And many times in those plots and those stories, people sin in godless ways to get something that fulfills them. People fall in and out of love just based on how someone else makes them feel. So it's no surprise that in today that the word love is very much distorted and many times in the name of love destroys relationships, destroys marriages. There's so many just marriages, relationships out there just destroyed by people saying things like, well, I fell in love. Or the classic statement that's used over and over today is just, well, love is love. And that just kind of covers everything. So to the world, love is mostly a selfish desire. It's something that is self-centered. It's based on feelings and emotions. And many times people will sin to fulfill what they want, to fulfill their own desires. And many times will justify sin, sinful actions to fulfill they're love, out of sake of love. And human history is filled with just countless recordings of abuse, murder, adultery, exhortation, just all in the name of love. As Plato once said, love is a serious mental disease. Now, as Christians, we cannot have that view of love. That is not the love that John is speaking of. And we need to have a biblical understanding of what true love is. Because, as we find out in this passage, we are commanded to love one another. And to be obedient to this command, we need to have a biblical understanding of how God wants us to love one another. The biblical view of love is not just emotion. It's not just a desire. It is an attribute of God. It's an attribute of God in which many ways should define us as Christians. It defines Christianity, and it is a command that we need to live by. So as we go through this passage, just a simple outline as far as I'm going to break it up, is we are going to uncover three reasons why believers must practice divine love. And the first reason, verses 7 through 8, is to exemplify God's nature. Look down with me at verse 7. John writes, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. Now, he starts out addressing his audience, these early Christians that he's writing to, and he addresses them as the beloved, beloved. And now, that is no small thing. That is not something just to just kind of push through and keep on reading. That is something to stop and see significance of that because the reason why he calls them that is because they are loved by God. So much so that they are defined by those loved by God. I mean, we could stop right now and just spend the next 40 minutes talking about just one word of how Christians can be called beloved. That is significant. But 
We can't stop there, otherwise we're going to miss the point of what John is writing to these early Christians. Because being loved by God should result in your own acts of love. There is something that comes out of that in your own life. So as John continues to write to his early beloved Christians, he, re- he gives them a request. He says, let us love one another. So he gives us a request, but it's really more of a command. It's an expectation. It is something that he's inviting them to do with him. Let us love one another. This is a very, this is a very tense thing that he's asking for. This is no small request. This is something to take very, very serious of what he is saying. This, let us love one another. Now, this is really interesting because to be able to do this, we have to have an understanding of what love is. If you were to take this saying, just cut it out of your Bible and just have it as this standalone saying, it would just kind of become this nice little motto. It would just become this nice little saying that makes people feel good. It would look good on a bumper sticker. I mean, I can imagine a car going down the road with one of those coexist stickers and right next to it, let us love one another. Whereas you would see that and some people say, oh, that's nice. And then some people just be kind of shaking their head. Just to be clear, I don't think the Apostle John would like such an out of context bumper sticker like that. We need to understand what he is saying. So um, what keeps this from being just some shallow thing that we just say, keeps this from being just a bumper sticker saying and that is the biblical definition of love. So we need to understand what the love is that John is writing about. And here, he uses a very specific word in the Greek. He uses agape, which many of you are familiar with. Agape is a very theologically rich term. It's a very broad term. It can be defined as a love that is selfless, loyal. It is a faithful love. It is unconditional. Many times in the New Testament, like this passage, it's used in the context of giving up yourself for another. In other words, it is a selfless, sacrificial love. It is a divine love. It is a love like God has. So Paul gives a very good description of agape love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. Let me read it for you really quick. This passage many of you are familiar with. But he writes this to the Corinthians. He says, Love is patient. Love is kind. And and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked. Does not take into account wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And if you were to be honest with yourself with this description of what love is, this is a foreign and alien thing than what we're used to hearing the word love tossed around. This is far different. So if we go back to our bumper sticker saying, out of context, just let us love one another, but instead it's the meaning here of let us agape one another. Let us be selfless. Let us be self-sacrificing with one another. That changes the way that you view this command that John is giving us. In fact, for most people, if you use this definition of love, this request by John 
for most people, becomes absurd. It becomes absurd because who wants to do that? Who wants to be enduring in all things, be self-sacrificing in all things with one another? All of a sudden, that request becomes not very appealing to us. And we have to remember that as sinners infused, infused with selfishness, this request cannot be carried out. When love goes from just an emotion that makes me feel good to all of a sudden to be self-sacrificing, the word love is not appealing anymore. And here we need to remind ourselves that the one another that he's talking about, he's talking about other Christians. He's talking about the body of Christ, this command that he's giving. And we have to assume that the reason John is giving this request, he's giving this command, is there is a danger of Christians not doing this. And I'm sure all of you would nod your head yes. I mean, all of us in some ways have experienced either somebody not loving us like God would or are ourselves doing the same. It is a danger because of our selfishness. In God's providence, he builds local churches where not everybody is the same. God saves all kinds of people, and there's lots of diversity within the body of Christ. And many times, those differences can cause conflict. I'm sure in this room, there are many different viewpoints on politics or how to educate your children. In this geography, what color your tractor you should have. And the list goes on and on and on. And sometimes those differences can cause conflict. So how could a room like us fulfill this command that John's giving? How can we love one another like he is requesting? Look down the rest of verse 7. And John continues. He gives us a reason why this not only needs to happen, but can happen. He says this. For love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So he just simply states, love is from God. The good news is, it's not from ourselves. It's not something we came up with. God is the one that possesses love. It comes from him. True love is divine. In fact, it's not just something that comes from God, but as we are going to uncover, it is who he is. It is an attribute of his. Being a God of love is how God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself as having the great attribute of being a loving God. In Exodus 33, a story that many of you are familiar with, Moses is up on the mountain. He's with God. And he's speaking to him. And he makes this very strange, bold request that many of us would have done the same thing. He asked to see God. And God grants him that request, but not the way that you, we would think of. He doesn't show his face, but instead he tells Moses who he is. And this is recorded in Exodus 34, 6-7. It says, Then the Lord passed in front of him proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, Slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So who is God? He is the one who abounds in loving kindness and gives out loving kindness in his grace. Skipping to the end of verse 8, which we'll talk about here in a minute, within this passage of 1 John, John says God is love. It's who he is. It is his very nature to be a loving God. And that's comforting for us. 
That love is not from ourselves. It is from God. But going back to us, once again, this is something that we need to do. We need to love one another. So what about us, those with a sinful nature? How can we practice this kind of love which John is talking about? And look back at verse 7. He says, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So there is something that has happened. Everyone who loves is what? As he says, born of God. So how can you practice this kind of divine love in which John is talking about? You must be born again. And of course we know the life of a Christian begins with new birth. Ever since the fall of Adam, human beings are physically born, spiritually dead. From the moment you are born, the moment you take your first breath, you are spiritually dead, which means you are lost in sin. That's bad news. But the good news is God has done something because of his loving nature. Paul writes to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. He says, after he explains to them how they were born and dead in their trespasses and sins, he then says this in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So this is the good news of what God has done. Those who are dead in sins can have new birth. And at the moment of salvation, you are given this new birth of a new mind, a new heart. You now are not perfect, but you are alive spiritually, which means you have a new heart and mind that is now convicted of sin, and you now have desires being shaped and formed into the likeness of God. And one of those characteristics of a born-again Christian is they love the way God loves. They exemplify God's loving nature. So those, born, those who love are born of God, but that's not all. Going back to verse 7, he also says another characteristic is they know God. Now, John doesn't just say that they know about God. What he says very specifically, he says they know God. So now what's the, what's the difference? Now here's an example. So as an American, I somewhat know our president. I know some things about him, not just our current president, but past presidents. And he's always in the news, he's in the culture, he's in front of us all the time. So because of that, just because of where I live, I know some things about him, just because of me being an American citizen. But if you contrast that knowledge that I have of our current president or even past presidents, and then you contrast that with how I know my wife, those are two completely separate things of how I know somebody. When it comes to my wife, I have a relationship with her. She is the most central part of my life. In fact, my day, every decision that goes into my day is somehow usually centered or connected to her in some way. She's connected to, my, she's connected to me in my life in a way that doesn't just affect my daily walk, but in some ways it defines who I am. I mean, if you go back to Mission Road, to many people, I'm best husband. Or many people who know her, well, she's James's wife. I mean, we're connected in a way that we have this relationship that actually defines 
who we are. And my life is centered around my relationship with her. That is a different knowledge than just knowing some things about somebody just because of where I'm at in society. And I fear that for many churchgoers in our society today, they know things about God just because they hear something about him every week. And it's much like any other famous person within our society. But those who are born again, they know God in a different way. They have a relationship with him. He not only affects the way you live, but he should define who you are. You should, if you are a Christian, you are defined by your relationship with God. And those who put their trust in God live a life of even getting to know him further through his word, through prayer, and to live your lives around worshiping him. Everything of who he is should affect every part of your life that the knowledge you have of him. And those born of God must exemplify his attributes of love. This is not just a command that we're supposed to live by. It's more than that. It's actually evidence that you are born again. Love is a product of new birth, as John is pointing out within this passage. Because... Without evidence of divine love, there may not be new birth. Look down at verse 8 with me. John continues. The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. Once again, God is love. That is his attribute. That is his nature. That is who he is. And the one that does not love may not know God. And so it means that they do not have this relationship with him. There is no new birth that enables them to have this kind of love. And without new birth, you cannot love in the way that John is talking about. Without some kind of intervention within your life that God has done, you cannot complete what he is talking about. So as Christians, how we live matters. How we interact with one another, it matters. The way you love others matters because not only is it something that we do to worship God, but we are exemplifying God's nature. We are actually putting out on display God's nature for others to see. So it's something we must take very serious. So with that in mind, this leads to our second reason to practice divine love that we'll cover in verses 9 through 10. And that is to display God's salvation. So God is the one who gives new birth, and he is the one who enables us to love through that new birth. Look at that in verse 9 with me. And John continues. He says, by this, the love of God was manifested in us. So he says that the love of God was manifested in us, which means being revealed. God has revealed his love to us, but how has he done this? How has he done this? And so he says, by this is pointing to how he has manifested his love in us. And he has done something in love. And look back down at the rest of verse 9. He continues. What did God do? John writes, God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. So God has revealed his love through his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is not just anybody, but he is God's only son. Jesus is unique. John is pointing to the uniqueness of Christ, pointing to his deity of being his only begotten son. It's not just anybody. 
It is God's only begotten son. He's pointing to his uniqueness, his deity, and who he is. So God didn't just send anybody. He sent Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus Christ in the world. Christ left glory with the Father, came down to the world to be a sacrifice for those who did not know him. And that was out of God's love. And so this act of love that all of human history is centered around was done for a purpose. And what was that purpose? Look back at verse 9. John writes, so that we might live through him. So God sent his son to enable us to love, but more than that, to give us life. That we actually might live through Christ. And through faith alone in the atoning worth of Christ, there is new birth. There is new life through his sacrifice. And so that is something God has done for us. He has done something that we might live through Jesus. And that task was no small task, as we will read in verse 10. So what does God's love look like, this act of sending his son? Read verse 10 with me. John continues. He says, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So this love of God, it is unconditional because did we do anything to deserve it? Was it anything of who we are or our good works or something that we have done? No, it's not based on us, but it's based on who God is. It's all based on his loving nature and who he is. And so what did he do out of this act of love? He sent his son to complete a task that no one else could do but his son. And what was that task? He says that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, this word propitiation, this was a word that when I was younger, maybe in high school, I just kind of would have, you know, just kind of passed over. It's kind of a big word. Now, this word causes me to just kind of stop in my tracks because of the magnitude of what it means. Now, the definition is very simple. It's just the removal of wrath by an offering of a gift. That's what propitiation is. It's taking something because there has been a payment made. It's a transactional definition. And so what was the propitiation that Christ provided for us? He made a payment and took on the wrath of God for us. That is something he has done. And here we have to remember that we are born enemies of God. Those who rightfully deserve his anger, deserve his punishment. Once again, John is pointing out that he did not do this because of us. Scripture makes it very clear that we, are enemy, we were born enemies against him. And yet he did it because of who he is. A payment had to be made, and that payment was Christ. So Christ received the full wrath of God that should have been poured out against the sins of his people. So Christ's sacrifice has averted and appeased the wrath of God towards sinners. So if you are a Christian, that means that you have been changed. Your position, this relationship between you and God has been changed from one of enmity to now one of reconciliation. Once again, not because of anything you did, but because of what he has done. 
So we kind of sum this up. What, what does God's love look like? It looks like him pouring his wrath out on the only one who deserves his love for those who do not. That's what his love looks like. That's that sacrificial love of God. And we have to remember this, Christians, that our forgiveness that was paid by Christ, that forgiveness comes at a terrible price. That's something that we cannot forget. So with that in mind, why would God do this? Why could he not just let us off the hook or turn a blind eye? Let's just kind of forget about this. And the reason why he can't is once again because of who he is, because of his nature, because he is a holy God. Earlier, I read Exodus 34, 6 through 7. And some of you who probably have that passage memorized probably knows I didn't finish it. Because after, Mo, after God tells Moses of who he is as being a God full of loving kindness, those who, that one who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, he then says this at the end. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So God is perfectly just the very standard of righteousness. Most people are very okay with God being a God of love, but they are not okay with God being a holy God who is perfectly just and perfectly righteous. And we have to remember that as God, as a holy and just God, as sinners, he will do what is right, what sinners deserve because of his justice, and that is eternal punishment. It's a harsh reality, but that is who God is because of his holiness. So how do we, how do we understand this tension of, well, he's a loving God, but also he's a holy God of perfect justice, which means he has to punish sinners because that is the rightful just thing to do. Like, what do we do with this? And this passage tells us God has done something out of his love to justify sinners. And what did he do? John says he sent his son. So the good news is that Christ took the wrath of God for those who would put their trust and faith in him alone. And because of Christ's sacrifice, we're not just left off the hook. God doesn't just turn a blind eye. But we are justified, not on our own good works, but because of the works of Christ. That is the good news. And because of that, God can justly show his love to those who do not deserve it because their fine has been paid. Christ is their propitiation. So if you're a Christian, your life should be a proclamation of God's salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And as Christians, the way that we interact with one another, the way that we love one another, the way that we live in a way that glorifies and worship God, that should be a display of our salvation that others can see. This change that has happened in us. So how we live matters. Living a life of divine love points to our salvation through Christ. And as Christians, our love for others should flow out of God's love for us. Once again, he was one who loved us when we didn't love him. And when we understand the magnitude of that love that he has, that should cause us to live in a life that worships him. And then out of that worship, we should love one another in a way that displays our salvation, this work 
that he has done within us our salvation. So with that in mind, the next, two, the next three verses, we're going to uncover the third reason to practice divine love. And that is to testify of God's indwelling presence. So God has done great things for us through his love, as we've just read. He's provided salvation through his son for those who put their faith alone in his sacrifice. And through the works of Christ, there is new birth. There is a life of knowing and having a relationship with God. And what's the conclusion of all that? The conclusion of everything that God has done for us as Christians, something that we did not deserve. We went from being enemies of God to now being reconciled to him through the atoning work of Christ on the cross. What's the conclusion to that as Christians? Look down at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That is the only logical conclusion to everything that we've read up to this point. Because of the love of God has for us, we should have that same love of God for one another. And so we have to remember that this biblical definition of the self-sacrificing love is an impossibility in our own selfish nature, in our own sin, but through the propitiation of Christ, salvation through faith in him alone, not just becomes possible, something that you can now do, now that you have new birth and you know God, but now it is an obligation. It's something that we must do. It's something that we have to do. Through God's love, we can love, and we must love. We must love one another. So John continues in verse 12. He continues and says, no one has seen God at any time. Now, this is kind of an odd thing to say, say right here. When you're just kind of reading it, you're just, you almost have to stop and just, well, what, why are you saying this? And it's kind of an odd thing to say, no one has seen God at any time. Of course, Scripture makes that very clear. In fact, going back to the story of Exodus of Moses being up on the mountain before God actually showed him his glory by telling him who he is, Moses asked to see him, and this was God's response in Exodus 33.20. He says, but he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. No one can see God because of his holiness, and no natural man can stand before him. It's a terrifying thing to be in the presence of a holy God. And yet, look back down to, verse, look back down to the rest of verse 12. John says, if we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So the way that we love one another is a testimony of God's presence in our lives, of his abiding presence within us. God, with salvation, didn't just forgive sins and walk away from us, but he is with us as Christians. He has given us his Holy Spirit. And Seeing the fruits of the Spirit come from us, that is a testimony of God's abiding presence with us. So how do people witness an unseen God? And we know that through creation, through his word, but also through us, through the transformation that the gospel has had in our life. That is something that as we love in the way that God loves, other people should be able to witness and see those great attributes in some sense See the work of God within our lives. So salvation of Christ does more than just avert the wrath of God taken away from us. 
It reconciles us with God and we are indwelled with his spirit. He abides with us. And as John writes, this part of abiding with us, he also says that God's presence in our lives is a testimony as he puts it. His love is perfected in us. Now, this does not mean that we are perfect, right? We're not going to be perfect until we're standing in front of Christ someday, clothed in his glory and his righteousness. But what it does mean is that his goal of salvation has happened. It has been perfected. It has started where now a Christian is in this time of sanctification, of being made into the likeness of Christ. His goal of salvation is something that has been fulfilled in that Christian's life. And they are now in, a, in the time of sanctification and being continually shaped into Christ's likeness. And everything that we do as Christians, including what John is talking about in this passage, the way that we love one another, that points to God's abiding presence within our life and this work that he has within us, this fruit of the Holy Spirit that is coming out within our lives. So the way that we love one another is a testimony of God's presence. And it should, the way that we live is a way that should be a witness to those around us of what he has done for us. It's something that we do. They should see it as something that we should also speak and we should share. And it's something that we should constantly be sharing and speaking about with our lost friends and loved ones. And they should see that within our lives that we are different God abides with us. So as Christians, we are obligated and we must practice divine love. We must love one another. Now, John, the Apostle John, this is not just something he came up with by himself. But he heard something very similar from Jesus Christ himself. Many of you remember the, the historical account that John writes in his gospel of him at the Last Supper, being in the upper room and having that final teaching from Jesus. And as Jesus was addressing his disciples, John being one of them, in fact, he was sitting right next to him at the time. In his gospel, in John 13, 35 through 34, John records this is what Jesus said. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So John heard this command at the Last Supper with Jesus. He wrote it for us today. And as Christians, this command is for us. How do you know that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, that you're a follower of his? If you have love for one another, people should be able to see that of how we interact together in the body of Christ. So if you are a Christian, this should be your life. This should be how you live and how you interact with those within the body of Christ. Now, at a room this size, it would be dangerous for me to assume that everyone here is a born-again believer. The scripture makes very clear that the way is narrow that leads to life. And if you're sitting here thinking that there's no evidence in your life of having these kind of attributes of God and how you show love to one another, don't run away from those questions. Scripture commands us to evaluate ourselves. 
And if you're here this morning and you're having those questions, today's a good day for you. This is a good morning for you to be here, to hear the good news that God is a God of love. His nature is love, and he has provided a way of salvation from his wrath through the sacrifice of the Son. And I would, if you were not a believer, I would beg you to put your, your belief and trust in Jesus Christ alone in his sacrifice, not in any of your works of your own, but his works, his sacrificial works on the cross, and repent of your sins and follow him. That's something that we are commanded in Scripture to do. That is the beginning of being a Christian is faith alone in Christ alone, through grace alone, nothing of yourself. So if you're here and you have any questions about what it means to be a Christian or further questions of the gospel, please come talk to me, talk to Bob, any of the elders here in the church. This is, this is the morning to talk about these things. Do not put off eternal things to talk about later. Now is the time to talk about those things. And once again, we have a mighty God who saves. That is good news. And for everyone, I hope this was a convicting message passage. This is a convicting passage for me. This is one I have to go back to over and over and over to remind myself because Christian life is hard. It's difficult. Living in a sinful world, fighting your own sin, it is difficult. And many times we slip and we fall in our own selfishness and we do not treat others the way that God has treated us. And we have to remind ourselves that we have a God who forgives as part of the gospel. And I would just beg you, if, there's any, if you have any fractured relationships with those within this body, other Christians outside, please make that right. We should, as a body of Christ, we should be in this constant process of confessing our sins to one another, forgiving one another, loving one another. That needs to be something that we are always, always doing. And we need to be quick and doing that to glorify God. The body is strengthened out of individual born-again believers that love one another out of their love for God. And we need to be the ones who do that. We need to let us never forget that if you're a Christian, you are beloved of God because of who he is. And so with that knowledge, let us be a living display of God's love for us by the way we love and serve one another. Father, I just want to thank you so much for this passage. We are so quick to forget just the magnitude of our salvation, the great things that you have done through us, through your son, Jesus Christ. We are quick to forget. And Father, thank you so much for your word that constantly puts reminders in front of us of the great salvation we have. And I pray that we would continue to meditate on this as we go forth this week, that, Father, we would think about the relationships that you have given us with family members, friends, people inside and outside of church, and we would think how we need to conduct ourselves in a way that glorifies you. And Father, I pray that you would use us as a way to spread the good news of who you are through the, the, the transformation of the gospel that's been in our lives. Father, please use us to glorify you and your son. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.